This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Ross Morrison McGill. Ross founded at Teacher Toolkit from a simple Twitter account through which he rapidly became the most followed teacher on social media in the UK. In 2015, he was nominated as one of the 500 most influential people in Britain by the Sunday Times as a result of being most influential in the field of education. He remains the only classroom teacher to feature to this day. Sharing resources and ideas online as Teacher Toolkit, he has built his website since 2008, which has been described as one of the most influential blogs on education in the UK, winning the UK Blog Awards in 2018. Ross is also a best-selling author of 100 Ideas for Secondary Teachers, Teacher Toolkit, Helping You Survive Your First Five Years, Mark Plan Teach, and Just Great Teaching, amongst other titles. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this morning. Good morning, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, just to, to, to kick us off uh, gently onto the podcast, could you give us a, a brief journey of, of your career to date, please? Oh, uh, well, I started teaching on a blackboard. Uh, so way back in 1993, um, I think when I first got an OHP was quite exciting. I could rub things out, uh, keep certain sheets, all sorts of things. Uh, but I think as it's evolved, you know, the, the journey of a teacher from... Uh, creating resources on blackboards, you know, with the circle in the middle, don't rub this out and you do it for tomorrow morning, to OHPs, to PowerPoints, and then where we are today. Um, th- that That's pretty much been my journey. Um, you know, interesting to see how it's all evolved and uh, how the dialogue changes or regurgitates itself. Uh, good ideas are timeless, in my opinion. Uh, teachers need to learn the theory as well as the practice. Everyone goes through highs and lows. Uh, all teachers work hard. All schools are trying to do the good thing. But uh, particularly in England, we now have this marketization model, which uh, essentially creates us all in competition with one another rather than sharing, uh, which is an interesting dynamic. Um, so all my careers, state schools, uh, London secondary, I'm a designer technology teacher. Uh, I think 17 plus 20 years of leadership and uh, I guess you know the, the Twitter stuff the blog we'll talk about I'm sure and uh, my work now is in school, uh, schools full-time and you know my life online as well as a full-time job uh, supporting teachers around the world. Brilliant thank you we're going to come through a couple of your, your themes that you talk about and um, I've been part of your webinars over, over lockdown which have been fantastic and, and as I said offline I, I've, I've read most of your books so we're going to come pick some of the ideas there and I'd like to start with, with Mark Plan teaching ask you how you came to that idea of Mark, Mark and Plan and then teaching and I think it was your, your school's teaching and learning policy if you want to correct me there. Yeah no it was so um, I just um, arrived at a school as a deputy head in 2014 uh, the school had just gone through three head teachers. Um, bit of a difficult period. The head teacher had been there for a term. Um, the middle leadership essentially had got the school through a difficult period. Uh, some fantastic teachers there, but the school was, uh, you know, for old money labelled outstanding, new money called requires improvement, that type of stuff. Uh, quite a high profile head at the time. Uh, you know, super head Tony Blair relationships, all sorts of things. Brand new building, uh, Jihadi John as an ex-student, the terrorist um, uh, with beheading people a few years back, was labelled also as an ex-student. 
So the school went through a really tough period in the first year I was there. And But the interesting thing I remember is some of the f- most fantastic teachers there um, were desperate for some clarity, some consistency. Um, and I guess some commonality because there was such a wide range of methods or myths i suppose so we set about we um i was i was one of the key voices for abandoning lesson grades in england at that time so the first thing i did as a deputy is got rid of that uh, so that dialogue shifted over time uh we then also sent our kids home on wednesday uh 2 30 in the afternoon we had a cpd session every week in teams all together in little pockets that type of stuff and we started to talk about teaching and learning Uh, what we wanted as the school and I guess my life as a blogger there so this 2014 I've been blogging uh, six years it was the first school I actually went to where people knew me before I went through the door and that was a really interesting experience Um, so a bit of that kind of first experience of kind of online celebrity like status which was really weird but um I guess the staff bought into me from the very beginning because of the the digital reputation I had. So anyway, we built Mark Plan Teach together for three years, uh, every week, uh, every other week, that type of stuff, to a place where it wasn't always Ross at the front. It was everyone else having a voice and sharing. And I guess what I did behind the scenes was I blogged the ideas and the templates, and some of it went viral, some of it went um, through air, kind of the the other whatever the opposite of viral is down the swanee and uh i took it the took the feedback back in but obviously i filtered it all uh and gave people the hard questions and i guess what i have since evaluated three years later uh since the book was published so the policy was you know a one-page summary that had you know 20 pages behind the scenes of documents powerpoints training sessions that type of stuff so essentially the skeleton of the book was there i just um thought well there's a great book for me to write so um i got on with it and published it at the time when i decided to leave the school through a very uh, an interesting story in its own right and uh, i've lived the book in 200 plus schools 15 countries uh, so i've just written an updated version actually it's going to come out in january uh what has made me realize is yes it's important to read research share ideas tweak practice those types of things but um good teaching works in most settings, it's the teacher that needs to translate it into their own context. I guess is the key message. Right, we're gonna we're gonna tackle some of those some of those messages on, on great teaching a little bit later. But we're gonna start with marking after that because obviously the first part of the part of the book is on about marking and assessing. But marking is a significant burden for teachers, and I want to ask you: Is it still a big burden for teachers? And and what strategies do you suggest to, to lessen that burden? Well, my um, online and physical research has always suggested that work, you know, we know workload's the biggest burden, uh, but what actually is the specifics of that? Um, so I've, I've researched um, the difference between independent and state school teachers, different countries. And it, uh, for me, for a teacher at least, not a school leader, uh, for teachers, marking is the number one burden. Uh, that constant uh, need to record to provide that feedback um you know 750 lessons a year 30 kids then it's just a never-ending job um so that seems to be the biggest burden often it's either for uh evidence in purposes for work scrutinies for inspections for school leaders or for parents 
And I think some of the solutions that I've been working on is the Verbal Feedback Research Project, which I published last year, which raises the profile of a couple of things. One, that verbal feedback techniques work. They uh, actually have a uh, just as good or if not better impact on kids' outcomes. And the second one, to kind of change the myths for parents and school leaders and inspectors that um, often what you haven't seen doesn't mean that it's not happened. Um so often we have to record things for evidence for someone that might see it when they pop in, when it suits them. So as a whole, I could talk about it all day. Um, it's it's a very uh, difficult topic. I'm not saying abolish written feedback. It has its, uh, it has a place. But um, as we know with all techniques with marketing and assessment, it has to be meaningful. It has to be manageable for the teacher. It has to actually help the kid improve their piece of work. It's something that's never going to go away. Uh, we're always going to need to mark books, provide feedback. And I think some of the schools that are really tackling it doing it really well, I think regardless of what they do, the danger is it's always going to be trumped by external audiences such as exam boards uh, and what they say has to happen for an assessment or for a piece of coursework. Or when I come to inspect your school and I, I'm not a French specialist, but I pop into your classroom and I want to see, oh, well, you know, if I still have that myth or perception that it has to be written down, or if you've said it, well, I don't know if you've said it, can you prove to me that you did and the kids acted on your feedback? So it's it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, but marking seems to be the number one thing. So can you speak a little bit more, you mentioned there about your verbal feedback, feedback research and, and kind of unpick that, because I've trialled it a little bit with apps like Quicker Feedback and, and Voice Recording, my my work and that seems to do work quite well for the children and it also minimizes my workload yeah no so it's important to emphasize it's a range of strategies it's not just speaking to kids obviously scripts routines uh, visualizers um uh, self and peer assessment techniques all those things we know already do um it, it's about um ra- raising the profile of other techniques rather than having to write or stamp or um, provide, you know, word banks, all those types of things that we do that are traditionally laborious and often that I'll use that word evidence in. If I spent countless hours with my kids on my own before I was observed uh, once a month or once a term and I've spoken to kids every single lesson about their behavior, about their learning, about their homework, all of that is lost by another observer. So it was about capturing the evidence of that, more importantly. So I've often said, if people read the actual verbal feedback report, and it's published by UCL, so you can get it on my website or theirs, um, there is much more evidence that you can gather from using verbal routines, verbal feedback techniques, rather than writing something down. So for example, if our focus was, let's say the school or, or my lesson has poor punctuality, if over time I'm using verbal scripts, motivational tools, rewards, um, speaking to kids in class, uh, yellow box marking methods to reduce mark and give kids more immediate feedback in the lesson rather than taking the books home two weeks later, marking it, giving it back, the kids have forgotten, and it's a slower uh, loop, so to speak. If I'm using more immediate techniques that uh, – facilitate me having micro conversations in the classroom with all kids and where kids suffer um i have a bit more of a deep and meaningful conversation then the result may be that they start to run to my lessons quicker and the punctuality improves so there is one aspect of evidence that you could evaluate 
that actually when I spend more time with kids providing verbal assessment, the punctuality improves. So there is an evidence method if you want. So the research essentially unpicks all aspects of school life from exclusions to attendance to punctuality to reward points to motivation in class to putting your hand up the whole spectrum of everything we do in education as quote evidence unquote right thank you and that kind of i think encouraging people to to try and use these strategies to to maximize time in class with children rather than taking books home without children is definitely something that can improve our well-being as teachers and, and improve our practice as well and it brings me on to to just great teaching you know, your, your latest book that, that, that's out and for Just Great Teaching you tackle the top 10 issues in, in, in UK classrooms how did you identify these issues? Uh, Twitter to begin with uh, I, I must have a tweet out there somewhere where I've asked what are the biggest things that drive you crazy for a new book idea and then I I must have at the time got quite a lot of replies. In fact, now I've mentioned it, I might go and check where it is later and see if I can find the tweet. But um, I remember being inundated and then I tried to categorize them all. And I wanted to not write about funding because obviously that can be the key to many issues. So I wanted to move away from the most obvious and actually target specific things, curriculum assessment, exclusions, teaching, learning, special needs, and those are now the chapters of the book. So I guess it was amalgamating them both. Um, you know, things such as ed tech would fit into uh, teaching and learn or planning. So it was about trying to find a best fit. And what I wanted to do is divide the book into certain sections where I could then identify a school that tackled one of those issues that we all face really well. So, you know, all of us have a journey with teaching and learning. All of us have a journey with behavior curriculum. So let me write more specifically about the research. Let me unpick what I see at a, a, a national level across the UK rather than just in England or Scotland and uh, talk about what's working well and then find a school, uh, just one of the 32,000 schools we have in the country, um, and find a school that's doing that one bit of school life really well. Not to say these are the best schools. All schools are, are doing well. It's about finding a school that I could um, have worked with that has that could celebrate the things that how they tackle that challenge. Right, and what's interesting is that you write in the in the book that, that teachers simply need the time and space to teach with simplicity and passion to collaborate and to develop. That's it. That's great teaching. Is it as simple as that? Well, um, I think I think that quote is from the end of the book, I think, or it might be the end of the introduction. Obviously, um, there's a lot more depth and detail behind the scenes, but um, I, I think it's building upon Mark Plantich more specifically. It's getting rid of all the nonsense, allowing teachers the freedom. You know, you've got a lot of external accountability, which impacts on decisions school leaders make. School leaders have to buffer and protect their staff uh, uh, as well as when they you know the superheads taking on quote failing schools unquote um the the perception that people in that institution aren't good enough whatever for whatever reason whether it is genuinely poor teaching or if it's just external demographic issues uh, which are broadly um uh, you know i wouldn't want to kind of be too loose on school accountability we need schools to be held to account but um if you're working in a poor disadvantaged area um the your backs are again already against the wall but i think having now widened my lens and seen by definition great schools not so great schools 
high P, uh, P high fee paying schools. Um, I've been to the second most expensive school in the world, £95,000 a year in fees. And when they asked me to come and help with their teaching and learning, I had this whole imposter syndrome. Why me? And why are you spending that much money? And you've got an issue with your teaching. And actually, uh, you'll you'll know Fetis College as well, another boarding school with a good reputation. Um, they feature in the teaching and learning section of Just Great Teaching. And I think for my own bias, my own imposter syndrome, it made me appreciate that regardless of school setting, everyone faces the same challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly that feature, and going back to your quote, it's just simple stuff. It actually is. Um, if we bring it all back to just basic human qualities, if you create the conditions where teachers can regularly talk to each other, they build relationships of trust, confidence, challenge, and it's done on a regular basis rather than just a tick box and it's a one-off, and that they can see uh, school leaders leading from the front and the head teacher is also there and is a learner themselves. Your staff will go with you. Um, And obviously things get in the way, inspections and events and all sorts of issues uh, externally and internally will get in the way. But the happier schools I started to discover, regardless of high peen schools or independent status or grammar or or disadvantaged state school those schools in all those contexts were just bringing their teachers together regularly to talk about teaching and looking at books looking at blogs writing their own stuff creating events prioritizing professional development for their staff to allow them to grow in a culture of trust where the new teacher to the school had a voice the nqt could stand up confidently in front of their whole staff Mr. McGill, who's once a bit experienced and a bit grumpy and has now lost their mojo, has had his flames rekindled by so-and-so and is actually really empowered and excited to get out of bed in the morning. And it's, it's, it is on the surface basic stuff, but culturally it's a lot of work behind the scenes by every school leader, I'll say, not just the head teacher, every person that's got a teaching and learning responsibility, collectively all signing up to the same hymn sheets to make that transformation i mean you know we all choose to work in a school why that school and if there are things that you're not happy with do we walk past it do we ignore it or do we uh, i say call it out without being too callous call it out in a safe and comfortable place where it's not a threatening conversation but it's it's a hard one to get right but i think once that stuff is done and we focus on the simple things, those simple things look on the surface easy to do, but there's a lot of work that's gone on behind the scenes. So I hope that explains that quote. No, definitely. Kind of ties back to what you said earlier about the, the Mark Plan Teach policy where you you separated the, sent the children home early and, and gave that time and space to the to the staff, then that convert, robust conversations were able to happen to allow the simple stuff to then to then take the floor, if you like. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely that. It's... um. I've read a lot, lot of research on the the hallmarks of effective CPD, and you'll think it's the usual stuff, uh, you know, collaborative, buy-in, uh, a choice of workshops, um, f- well-funded, those types of things. But um, the research that I've, I've discovered about a year ago said that it, it challenged all that nonsense, that it actually isn't. Actually, what, what does make the difference is one-to-one conversations. So if we all think of that teacher that we work with who sat down with us and helped us through some difficulties 
and actually put aside five, 10, 30 minutes or even an hour after school when we've sat in our office till six o'clock at night and made a difference to our our energy, our focus, our resources, the difficulty that we face, whatever it is with a kid or with another colleague, those people are the people that you keep in touch with when you move on to another school and that have changed your career. And if we strip it all back, it's just been a simple conversation with a cup of tea. So I'd say to school leaders listening, you know, create the conditions for your staff to come together, but give them a cup of tea, slice of cake, create people in pairs where they can be supported and challenged and people understand each other's professional needs but not to make it woolly it's got to be a robust and rigorous professional conversation but it's it's something that happens on a regular basis but you you feed your staff and you give them a cup of tea and i think well well that so going back to the research it trumps what we think is effective and actually it says one-to-one conversations so for me that's coaching so just to kind of build upon the research findings I, I wrote on one of my blogs, I can send it to you to put in the podcast, is um, have one-to-one conversations, but give your staff a cup of tea and a slice of cake. Brilliant. Please do send me that, and I'll, and I'll sign post that in the notes, and I'll definitely be giving that to my school leader to see if I can get some a cup of tea and a <laughs> cake at the, at the next staff meeting when we go back. Um, and an area that really interests me, which, which, you, wrote, which you wrote about in a, in a chapter in, the, in Just Great Teaching, is research-led practice. And you're right that school leaders aren't that confident with this, why do you think that they're not that confident and how do we help schools become more research-led and critical of research that they read? Um, uh, uh, firstly, it's a time issue. Secondly, if we think of academic research, you know, I'm just getting into my second year of doctorate and I'm reading stuff that's way above my knowledge and, and understanding. And often it's a very detailed paper and you will just take a quote or the conclusion and then we'll use that as a soundbite to justify something. And as with all research, there's always a, a for argument there's a, and then there's another bit of research that says the total opposite. Um, again, when you, uh, so I'm starting to look at methodologies, it's important to look at how research has been conducted to understand not just its validity, but if it can be translated into your own context. That takes a hell of a lot of time uh, and teachers and school leaders don't have that time. So um, on my travels, I've often advocated that all schools need to appoint a research champion on their teaching and learning team who can at least dabble with it, translate parts of it, bring it into simple summary sheets uh, for staff CPD. And then at least allows people to be informed. And then, as, well, as well, with all of us, we'll dip into things that we're interested in and ignore things that don't uh, tickle our fancy. So um, it's... I think that's um, an issue. You know, you think of other parts of the research world. A lot of things are behind expensive paywalls. Um, I can't access them. So then you've got the benefit of your unions, um, your, you know, research ed movement, Charter College of Teaching here in England. You've got GTCS up in Scotland. So all those have always offered those types of services. Again, I'm too busy. You know, I get loads of teacher magazines through the, through the door. I don't read them all because I, I don't have time. But at least I'm... I guess, subscribe to some newsletters and documents and things where I can dip into them as and when I want. Um, Going back to where I think it's um, a weakness and why it's important, again, going back to CPD models, those one-to-one conversations, that can also throw in research questions and opportunities to read this, let's talk about this, or there's a five-minute presentation from Ross, right, break into your pairs, 
go and have a cup of tea in your offices and talk about this and we'll talk about it next week and can you report back with a slide or something you've tried in your classroom and those conditions allow teachers to slowly get immersed with research I think what I'd unpicked on my Just Great Teaching, so the data I collected are about 10,000 bits of data, evaluating all those 10 issues. And research was one of the weakest for school leaders and school leaders. I think it was 18% uh, said it was a strength, so 82 uh, not yet confident with it. And if I think of the world of social media, so you and I are both on Twitter, um, it's a bubble. It, it's all the kind of keen people that want to learn more have found this network where they can share bite-sized ideas and now we're all promoting our own podcasts books and blogs in education because we've got this social media technology now that allows us to have a voice and get feedback and grow an audience and that's essentially what i've done but um the whole world isn't on twitter <laughs> and you talk about you go back to the teachers in your own setting if you did a little survey you'll find the vast majority well, Facebook for me now, 2004, I started using Facebook. So that's 15, 16 years old. So a certain generation of Facebook users. Twitter is uh, one of the smallest social media communities. And then you've got your Instagrammers and now you've got your TikTokers. Um, so you look at your new, younger teachers joining the profession who are, you know, if I'm 21, 22 today, I've probably been born with a mobile phone. And I've always known social media, whereas, you know, my generation kind of created social media and I only had my first mobile phone when I was 26. So long story short with that is one, I can now access research on my mobile phone quicker and stuff like that. And I can share stuff faster. Uh, but two, um, a lot of the teachers in schools are interested in always being connected. So you've got that workload notification issue as well as um, the different types of teachers within your school who are on twitter and constantly talking about all these great things and then the other half that just see teaching still as a job and actually want to switch off and so you know we all go through those periods of life and you know i've got kids at home um uh, where you come home and you, you can't do any more work or you can't do your mark and you just want to switch off so life gets in the way of any job particularly with teaching and we know teaching is exhausting and many of us are doing double the hours that we're contracted to um Research isn't for everyone. People just want to just teach and be in the classroom. But the important point to emphasize here is that it's important that, uh, you know, if we're sick of parents and politicians telling us what to do, it's important that we are engaged with research in our own field. One, to raise the profile of the profession. Two, that maybe what we think works actually isn't supported by research. And I think that's the key part to emphasize that, you know, the myths, the stereotypes, you know, how many people listen to this still think learning styles um, our learning styles exist, but do they have any direct link to learning? Well, it, they, the, the research is very clear that it doesn't. So how many people listening still believe that it does? Uh, and I know that's still quite a prevalent issue for teachers in America. Uh, but compared to England, it, at least people on Twitter, you wouldn't dare say anything about learning styles because you would be... Uh, for want of a better word, hounded out of the Twitter community. <laughs> but that would be different on Facebook, and it would probably be different on the Classroom 4 for people not tweeting about stuff and having everything digitally recorded for someone to come into your tweet three months late and say, oh, Ross, you said this. Uh, and, and that's what we now have in the world today, this kind of populism where Donald Trump's tweets are quoted as news stories um, or something he said on Twitter seven years ago is outdated or... 
uh, viewed inappropriately. Certainly, thank you. And kind of brings me on to to some to your blog now, and 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 I'm an avid reader of of your blog and thoroughly enjoy it. But one that really comes out to me, and it kind of links to this idea of research, is is you noted that that memory is is the number one thing all teachers should know. What makes you think that? Um. Well, I think having read a lot more about it, I wish I'd learnt it as a new teacher. So I think of the new teacher institutions that I'm working with, they're all getting all this cognitive science stuff now. And yes, the world evolves and knowledge evolves. And as we are chatting now, we're learning from each other. So our, the, the connections between our synapses are getting stronger uh, and they uh, support, uh, so I'm kind of showing off my memory terms here, are our um, semantic and episodic experiences grow stronger and then we use this through a simple conversation to evolve the human race. Someone else listened to this podcast will think, oh, that's an interesting point. And then that um, uh, kind of long-term memory starts to get stored. I think, oh, Ross mentioned that word synapsis or hippocampus. And then that improves their connection of... So uh, the key message is it's understanding how we learn and how we remember stuff. And then the, the, it goes into all sorts of aspects, you know, Alzheimer's disease, short-term memory, retrieval practice, parts of the brain. And I think I've always had a bit of a fascination with psychology, and I've have taught it at some parts in my career through no fault of my or through no no deliberate choice. But I've had a, an interesting uh, obsession with it, and I think more now reading and teaching myself about it. I think it's made me more confident in what works in my delivery some of the ideas i've always used that i now don't think may have worked as much as i think they would have because i wasn't conscious of how cognitive load theory works those types of things all those arguments i had with kids me screaming at them um shouting them shouting at me you know me giving 10 bits of instruction and then ross in the corner saying sir i don't understand what you said well, if I'd known more about cognitive load and instruction and all sorts, I think, my God, I would have saved myself a lot of time and would have really changed the lives of thousands of kids. So I do think it's something that all teachers should be taught in their training, and it should also be on the agenda for all schools all the time because we're in the business of teaching and learning. We're always talking about teaching and we're always talking about learning, but we really need to dig deep into how what goes on inside our skulls that make things stick and I know we're busy we're marking and you know we're, we're getting distracted with all the details of evidence and stuff but actually if we really want you know raise the profile if we become experts just like doctors and psychologists are in their own sectors with you know whatever they're busy with if we became experts of and we are to a degree but if we became much more confident in Actually, if you're working with four-year-olds and you think about cognitive load and you want them to do a spelling test and then the results are reported by the government X, Y, Z, it then leads to ABC and these types of results, then we're starting to really um, change the teaching profession as we know it. And we might move away from this silly nonsense that every lesson has to happen every hour and that we move kids around school classrooms uh, in batches and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's um, a very interesting topic. Could you signpost listeners to perhaps that blog? And if they're, if they're just learning a bit and they're just hearing some of these terms for the first time now and they, and they go, oh, maybe I do want to learn about memory, where could they go? Well, I, I started off by um, reading a book called Connect the Dots by Tricia Taylor. 
and that rekindled my interest in memory. Uh, so I read the book um, for a start. Then I got into a few uh, audible books. So The Brain by David Eagerman, which starts to talk about parts of the brain, the hippocampus. I can't remember all the terms, but that's now my own CPD to learn a little bit more about that. And then through lockdown, I've just created a bit more um, webinar content. So by publishing, right, I'm going to do a beginner's guide to memory it forced me to read the book and then create a set of slides so now i've done it 10 12 15 times i think crikey that's good for my own memory and actually i'm learning more and actually i that, that led to doing an advanced session and learning more and then i was reading audible books behind the scenes so as i dug in and out of each different book i blogged key parts so the blog is called the number one thing teachers need to know and that's an introduction to trisha's book connect the dots and then there's another book by David Eagerman, The Brain, and that um, in the first chapter he talks about black cab drivers here in London, where I am. And uh, I, when I heard it, I actually had the stop on my bike ride. I think, right, I need to make a note and write this down. Got to write about it. He taught. Um, so cab drivers have to learn about twenty-five thousand street names in a six-mile radius of London and lots of different routes, A, B, C, D choices, and only ten percent of them qualify. And it went through all the kind of retrieval practice methods that they use. You know, I, I te there's the first day test. 21 days later, you have to do test B. So there's a whole spectrum of things. But my, I guess my question was, what do they do in terms of teaching and learning and training to help cab drivers know so much? And, and actually, what do the cab drivers do and that 10% that makes them clever so-and-sos to know so many street names? You know, six-mile radius is a big space. And London, as you'll know, uh, complicated street routes. So to know it all by memory without a sat-nav, um, it's probably why you pay a bit more of a premium compared to Uber. Um, so I found that interesting in itself, and that was just chapter one of that book. So it's just made me learn more about how do we remember stuff? And that's our job, you know, that's one aspect of our job as teachers, self-regulating kids' behavior, helping them make choices as citizens, but actually helping them learn stuff, not just for a test, but forever in terms of um them getting on in the world in the future and then uh, contributing back into society so um it's our key job get kids to know stuff better yeah certainly is thinking i'll signpost some of those some of those blogs in the in the episode note and my final my final thing to you before we move on to what i call my, my final three and, and i'm conscious of, conscious of your time this morning is um one quote that you use that, that really resonates with me in it, and i've tweeted about this a, a few times is that you say that there is a special place reserved in hell for teachers who do not share. Why is it so important for all teachers to share what they do and how's, how has this underpinned everything that you do? Uh, well, you know, my blog and books, they're not, obviously I tweak and come up with my own theories. It's that, that going back to that synapsis, they go stronger as we share ideas between one another and then we think, oh, we've got an idea. But actually when you read more about memory, You've had that idea lurking for months or even years. It's just become conscious. And it's something, either a word that someone said that makes your schema light up, and then it becomes uh, to the forefront uh, to consciousness where you think, I've just had an idea, but actually you've had that idea for years lurking beneath the scenes. Um, so I've always said that the ideas of my blogs and my books aren't mine, they're the professions. These are just my own translations of them, and I've just so happened to put them in a book or a blog, which has given me a bit more exposure than others. Um, so I don't own the ideas. I, I very much believe teaching is a team sport, and uh, that quote um, 
there's a special place reserved in hell for teachers that don't share comes from um a professor at harvard tina owen moore who wrote a book called the alliance way and it's the first bully free school in america and she got that quote about um she cited that i think is it margaret albright and i think the original quote in america was there's a place reserved in hell for women who don't share so playing on the language would change it to teachers and if you think of the our own practice the people that you work with in your own school settings the teams that are high performing the, the departments that work really well together it's because they share ideas it, you know and you think of where people don't share their scheme of work or keep the classroom door open um well we know what happens and uh, we we know uh, the reasons that might be that whether it's personal or professional or external factors such as pay rises those types of things so teaching is a team sport you can't solve all these complex classroom problems with kids' needs on the road on your own. You've got to do it together. And, and no teacher can survive in the profession without the help of someone else, particularly in the early days of your career. And when you step into leadership, you know your first department role, your first school leadership role. My God, do you need people around you to help you? Um, so you can't do it on your own. So that, the, I guess the quote was a bit of a play on the original quote. Um, from Tina O'Moore, who was citing Margaret Albright. Uh, and I think back to just school communities, we go back to what we said early in the podcast about sharing and talking together in one-to-one -one conversations. It's where, going back to what I said about memory and synapsis, it's we're, we're developing our own ideas through sharing a conversation on specific topics to improve our knowledge. Uh, and I think that's that's what it is. So um, teaching teaching is a collaborative profession. It certainly is thinking that idea that teaching is a team sport definitely sticks with me and, and as a PE teacher it definitely resonates in, in the department that, that I'm part of and, and everything yes. that we talk about. So I'm going to move on to my, my final three which is yes. three questions I ask every guest. But before I do that can you really quickly tell people where they can find your books, where they can engage with you in social media and how they can access your website and blogs? I think just type, um, I'm fortunate enough, if you just type Teacher Toolkit or Ross McGill on Google, you should be able to find everything that you need. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, so my first question and the final three is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Ooh. Um, books, 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 books. God, there's been so many. Um, I, I think I'd first signpost uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race has probably been one of the critical books i've read recently and there is quite a lot in there that can be very relevant for teachers particularly about our unconscious bias you know us two talking as white males and privilege and all that type of stuff i think it's a very important read for everybody particularly people listening here in br modern britain um teaching books Oh, I think of some of the classics, you know, Getting the Buggers to Behave by Sue Cowley, um, How to Teach Phil Beadle, um, you know, other other key books, you know, the kind of Why Kids Don't Like School, all, all those kind of cog scientists, scientists books. But um, uh, the, the kind of quotes and things that have resonated with me the most is the kind of probably the ones that I've ad-libbed and adapted for myself is the teaching team sport type things, uh, it's important to share. Um, th those things have made a big difference and resonated with me. I think ultimately it boils down to we all need a bit of feedback to improve our practice. We certainly do. Uh, my second question is, if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? 
Um, well, there's so many. I think um, the best thing that I can give advice is to visit as many schools as you physically can. And it's very hard when you're in the thick of your own school and you've got your own job priorities. And I know location matters, having been around the UK now. Um, but the best thing I've learned in the last three years of 25 years of teaching is visiting lots of schools. So I can see why in school inspectors and people like that in those positions of, of influence have a wide lens because they see more things. And I, I guess the lesson I've learned from that is you think something's working really well in your school, but you get quite absorbed in your bubble. And you probably visit maybe one or two schools in an academic year if you're lucky. Um, but I think if you can consciously go out of your way to set up visits, to share, to get half a day cover here or there, or if, you're, if your half-term holiday synchronized with someone else's or out of sync, those types of things where you get the opportunity to go and visit in your free time, I do think it's worth the effort because you, you'll get just so many ideas just from walking around corridors, listening to kids um, you know, it's 32,000 schools in Britain. Uh, which one are you going to choose to work in? It might not actually be the one that you're in now that's going to help you thrive. Thank you. What a great idea. And thank you so much for that. And my final question to you, Ross, is what do you think most gets in the way of, of just great teaching in our classrooms? Uh, what's the opposite word to common sense? I, I don't know what <laughs> caught me off guard. It, it, it's, this, it's the silly things. And I'd actually add in a lot of bullying. Uh, and and often we what we do as school leaders in particular is we we either uh, we generally adapt the ideas that we've been taught known that they're the way we make a lot of mistakes in our formative years in leadership because the very rarely do schools have the capacity to give shadow experiences so that we can learn on the ropes is literally you get the promotion you start the new school you spend a, a, a few months getting to know people and then you start to introduce your own ideas and get comfortable and put your feet under the table and uh, again whether it's influenced by research or influenced by bias we've talked about that earlier um it, it's just the the silly nonsense evidence gathering types of stuff that literally get in the way of good teaching so it's it's going back to that one-to-one -one, cup of tea slice of cake trustworthy conversations that are supportive and challenging and that all school leaders, including the head teacher, is present in all CPD opportunities and they present themselves as a learner also. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, that brings us to the, the end, Ross, just just in, in time for your busy schedule. I'd like to thank you for again to come on the podcast. It's been a great privilege of mine to be able to speak with you and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed that. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a good summer and I look forward to listening back on this and connecting with people who listen. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time, teach with joy.